Fellowship Faith, my name's Laura. If we haven't had the chance to meet, I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And we are so glad you are joining us um, this week, whether it's online or here in person, for this series that we've been working through called Messy Christmas. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see images of that first Christmas, it looks like serenity and joy and peace with Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and all those animals. I think that baby Jesus came all clean, swaddled up nice and neat, snug in his cute little cloth, and all those animals just look picture perfect, right? But the truth of the matter is that that first Christmas was messy. It was really messy. And when we look at the history that's recorded for us in the Bible, we see that first Christmas mess. So I want to take a minute and I want you to consider what that might have looked like. So you've got Mary and Joseph, and to begin with, they've got to walk a lot of miles. And Mary is really pregnant, walking a boatload of miles. And for some of us who have experienced pregnancy, I am quite comfortable that was not a pleasant experience for her. Or for Joseph, for that matter. <laughs> they arrive in Bethlehem, and here they are. They have this beautiful, precious, brand new baby in a manger. That's an animal feeding trough. So they're surrounded by all of these animals. And now I, I know I'm weird, but growing up, I grew up on my grandparents' sheep farm. And I loved the smell. I loved the hay. I loved the dirtiness of the sheep. I know this is crazy, but man, my favorite smell is that first day in spring when they open up the barn doors and you get all those smells. Now, I know that is not everybody's favorite uh, smell, but for me, uh, it brings back good memories. But if we think about it, this is where she birthed a child. They're surrounded by hay and animals, and I'm sure smells of all sorts that do not evoke serenity or hope or peace, not to mention that Mary just gave birth, which is not the easiest most painful experience there is, and to a baby. Now, as the children's pastor, I want to assure you, I love babies. I think they are God's wonderful gift to all of us, but let's be honest, they cry a lot, and we don't know often why they're crying, and they make little baby messes on your shirt most of the time as you're walking out the door, or they make really big baby messes. I mean, you get my point, right? This is the first Christmas. Yet, in the moments of this messiness, God is present. It's our hope and prayer during this series that each week as we've examined the messiness of our lives, Pastor James examined messy me in week one, Pastor Mike examined messy choices in week two, and today we're going to look at messy lists. It's our hope and our prayer that you see in the midst of all of the messiness that God was present then in that first Christmas, just as he is present today in our lives. But before we dive in to God's messy list, I want to take a moment and pray. Let's bow our heads. Father God, we want to take time to lift up Claudia and Steve Bologna and their entire family as they um, just found out this morning that Claudia's mom, Mary, passed away. 
God, we lift their family to you in this time of grief, in this mourning, and this loss. And while she was sick in the past couple of weeks, God, we know that this comes as a shock to the entire family. And so we just lift them to you. We ask for your hand of peace and comfort to be on them as they process. And God, we also lift the Bolognese to you for Paula, Claudia's sister, who is in the hospital fighting COVID at this time. So we just lift them to you. And God, in this season, when everything seems like we have to be merry and we have to be joyful, let us lift those of us who don't feel that. Let us help them to know you are present. Let us help them to know that they are not alone. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. So in one Peanuts comic strip, Snoopy is sitting at his typewriter, starting to write a story with the same opening line that Snoopy always uses. It was a dark and stormy night. Lucy, ever the critic, leans over and says, that's a terrible way to start a story. Stories start with once upon a time. That's how you start a story. So Snoopy starts over and he says, once upon a time, it was a dark and stormy night. The way a story opens is really important. Writers and storytellers, communicators, rightly insist that you have to have a hook to keep your audience or you will lose them right from the start. And the Bible's no different. When we begin reading the Bible, we, or the Gospels, we look at Mark and we see right away that he plunges into the story of John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism. You see what I did there? He plunges. Okay, anyway. So it's followed immediately by a confrontation between Satan and Jesus. Luke opens his gospel with angels paying visits to Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary, and the shepherds, and people breaking out in song about the goodness of God. John starts his gospel with deep and dark and mysterious theology. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation. But Matthew, Matthew opens his gospel in a way that says to the modern reader, I dare you to keep reading. He opens with a list. Now, <laughs> I don't know about you, but sometimes when I open up the Bible and I come across a list, it gets pretty tedious to me. They're filled with names that are crazy hard to pronounce and really don't make much sense to me when I read through them. And not to mention, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And my eyes kind of start glazing over. I mean, when we read in Genesis 5 that Adam had Seth and Seth had Enosh and Enosh had Kenan and Kenan had Malahalalel, I mean, you get my point. It's a lot of names. And I'm just going to say it. Sometimes I'm not so sure why these names and why I need to know them. And every time I look at this list, I may or may not skip over it. But alas, the names are there. And they're in the Bible, so we know they're important, and we know they're significant. So for today, we're going to read through a few of those names. We're not going to skip over them. And we're going to talk about why in the world did some of these authors deem it necessary to talk about these lists in the Bible. Now, if you are paying attention and you have a great memory, you'll remember that last week, Pastor Mike preached on Matthew chapter 1, verse 
18. So he skipped over 1 through 17, and you were probably like some of you, may have been like, oh, cool, we're not going to go over those names, but we are today. So here we are. We're going to look at Matthew 1, 1 through 17, and we're going to see an enormous list of names. And right off the bat, we have some really heavy hitters here. We see Jesus, David, and Abraham. Verse 1 says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we know this is going to be good, right? There we see some heavy hitters. This is Abraham, Father Abraham, who had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. Ah, yay, I love that you sang along. But I won't torture you with my Sunday school singing, but you get my point. He's a big dog. And then we have David, King David, a man after God, and of course, Jesus the Messiah. When we read Matthew 1, 1 through 17, we see a list of names that is large, long and largely unpronounceable. I mean, we see names like Uzziah, Hezekiah, Zerubbabel. I know as a former teacher, I don't have any of those names in my students' classes. Amen, teachers? But a first century reader of this text, a Jewish reader who had come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah to them, this text would have been largely significant and important. You see, genealogies were important to the Jewish people because it solidified their identity as belonging to the nation of Israel. So they wouldn't have skipped over to verse 18. They would have started with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and they would have soaked up every name. And in reading every detail in this list, they would have seen a pretty messy list. It was a list filled with sin and brokenness and people of questionable reputations. So let's take a look at this list at the lineage and family tree of Jesus Christ and try to make sense of why it's so important that Matthew uses it to hook his readers into reading his historical narrative of Jesus. So to begin with, this list includes women. Now, people rush to argue today that the Bible often represses women. And sure, there are some teachings in there that do challenge the way we think. But the reality is this. The Bible is a document that's ahead of its time. The fact that women are included in this genealogy, not just matriarchs, not just heroes or deaconesses, but normal, everyday women is really quite remarkable. In this list, we see Tamar in verse 3, Rahab and Ruth in verse 5. We see wife of Uriah in verse 6. And of course, Mary mentioned in verse 16. Now we might think, some of us might also be thinking to ourselves in modern day thought, of course women are listed. Why wouldn't they be? But this was progressive for even back then. You see, Christ's kingdom shook the status quo. It gave a picture of what the king's ministry would look like. Matthew and Jesus communi communicate clearly through this list that women are worthy, even to be listed as ancestors to the king. They were part of Christ's group of followers. They were among the first witnesses of the resurrection, and they were some of Christ's closest relationships. They were some of his best laborers. As Rebecca McLaughlin puts it, Jesus' valuing of women is unmistakable. In a culture in which women were devalued and often exploited, it underscores their equal status before God and his desire for personal relationship with them. Not only are women included in the genealogy of Jesus, 
but these are scandalous women. These are general hospital, throw your drink in your face, scandalous women. Yet they were included in the bloodline of Jesus the Messiah, the one who came to save us. So let's take a look at some of these messy characters that made this list. First off, we have Tamar. In verse 3, it says Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron. Now, it, we meet Tamar in chapter um, 38 in the book of Genesis. And now some of us might think she is not worthy of being included in the line of Jesus. After all, she was a Canaanite, which is not a Jewish person. And she's from a pagan tribe in the region. She's a, in a hated pagan tribe of the region that's considered an enemy of Israel. The Bible tells us that she is the daughter-in-law of Judah, one of Jacob's 12 sons. Now her husband dies, and for ancient law, it requires that she is to marry the next brother in line. Well, he doesn't want to give her an heir, and so he dies. And Judah promises Tamar that she can marry the next son when he is old enough to get married. But Judah doesn't keep his promise. So to get even with him, Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute, tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her, and becomes pregnant with twins. And one of those twins, Perez, is found in Jesus' genealogy. Tamar was a woman, she was a Canaanite, and she played the role of prostitute to create an incestuous encounter. But here she is, in the family tree of Jesus, she made the list. Messy person. This is going to be a little loud, so I'm warning. I see some of my um, faith kids friends in here. This is going to be a little loud. Do not be afraid. But Pastor Mike and Pastor James don't get to have all the fun in making messes. So messy person number one is Tamar. See? Mike and James, you don't get all the fun. So that's messy person. Remember, it's messy Christmas. I got to be messy. All right, so there's more. In verse 5, we read, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab is the next woman we need to look at in the long, messy genealogy of Jesus. According to the book of Joshua, Rahab um, is also a Canaanite woman, like Tamar, and the Bible tells us she's a professional prostitute in Jericho. Not like Tamar, who prostituted herself once, prostituted herself once to accomplish a goal. No, Rahab made prostitution her profession. The Bible tells us that when the Hebrew people were crossing the Jordan River and beginning the conquest of the Promised Land, Rahab sheltered their spies and gave them valuable information. She hitched her wagon to these people who God was clearly going to overpower in the, um, on their way to the Promised Land, and she ended up in the, in the family line, <laughs> okay, as children's pastor, that totally just broke my heart. Sorry, Camille. <laughs> so, messy person. All right, are you ready, Felix? <laughs> and Sebastian, messy person number two is Tamar. <laughs> I mean, Rahab, Rahab, just kidding, Rahab. But wait, there's more. <laughs> I got distracted by poor Camille. Okay, so... <laughs> So we continue reading, <laughs> we continue reading on, 
Um, in verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse. So Ruth's story is best known by the verse that's often read at, at weddings. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Absolutely beautiful words spoken here. But they're not spoken between a husband and a wife. They're actually spoken between a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law. Now, I know some of you out there might be thinking to yourselves, well, I have some words for my mother-in-law, but they're not that beautiful. Um, but really, these were words exchanged between Ruth and Naomi, um, as recorded in the book of Ruth. So we see Ruth added to this messy list of Jesus' bloodline, and we learn that she's a Moabite. She's not a Jew. A tribe that Genesis 19 says was the product of an incestuous relationship. Ruth's husband has died, but soon she has her eyes on a man named Boaz, so she pays him a visit. And the Bible says that when Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. So this was an equivalent of a modern-day marriage proposal. Soon after, Boaz took Ruth as his wife, thus grafting Ruth into the family tree of Jesus. Ruth, a woman, an outsider, included in this messy list of Jesus Christ. This side has not gotten any. Okay, she left. Good. <laughs> <She's> <laughs> so messy person number three is Ruth. Oh, this is way too much fun. All right. <laughs> Sorry, Pastor Mike, I can't refuse confetti. So this was equivalent to a modern-day marriage proposal. So um, Matthew 1 tells us, And Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, I don't know about you, but I love that line. Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. She doesn't even get a name. She is Uriah's wife. But recorded history tells us that she is Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Again, a woman. Again, not a Jew. And her story is such that she is known because she committed adultery with King David. So, last mess. Messy person number four, right in my family. <laughs> we have, we, <laughs> we have Bathsheba. Welcome, Colin. This is, <laughs> we have Bathsheba. <laughs> All right, I'm done. I'm done making my mess. But here's the deal. So we, <laughs> so Matthew's written this family tree that is entwined with messiness. It has a list of names with historical significance and importance. Absolutely. A, a list of names that include Abraham and Isaac. We see Boaz and King David and Joseph. But there are also women and Gentiles and prostitutes and adulterers. And so it leaves us asking, why did Matthew feel this list, this messy list, was important for us to know? And I want to leave us with a couple of things to, um, to talk about why. First, I would argue that Matthew uses this list to show that God can use anyone. 
We see in this list that God uses gender, he uses ethnicity and status, he crosses all social and economic lines. He uses Ruth, Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, and Mary to tell the lineage of Jesus Christ. Throughout the Bible, God uses people that are heroes and champions, absolutely. But he also uses some of the least likely characters that you would ever deem worthy of telling his story. This messy list of Jesus' genealogy is no exception to that. It's important for us to read and to not skip over to verse 18 because it demonstrates that God uses our messiness and our brokenness to glorify his name. Matthew uses this list, number two, to focus on the faithfulness of God to bring about his plan of salvation. Each woman in this messy list shows us that God is a God of redemption. Most of these women were not Jewish. Some of them had questionable reputations. And let's be honest, if we had time and we dove further into this list, I know that there's a few more characters on there that definitely have a skeleton or two in their closet. But these people, this list, shows us that God loves all of us. And he fulfilled his promise to bring his son so that we can be saved. You see, this long list of crazy names and messy stories isn't just there to fill a page. It's there to show us that God is a God of redemption and that his redemption comes through his son, Jesus Christ. Matthew uses this list also to show that we can find our roots in the salvation history traced in Jesus' genealogy. Here's the reality. We all have our earthly fathers. It's true. We have Uncle Sal, who loves to talk politics at every single family party, even though you've asked him not to. We got Aunt Sally, who puts on five squirts, too many of perfume that smells like musty attic. And when she hugs you, it holds on for five minutes too long. You smell like her for days. But the reality is we also have abuse. We have neglect. We have pain and trauma and hurt that we have endured at the hands of our earthly family. This messy list, Matthew 1, 1 through 17, shows us that despite our earthly roots of family lineage, we have a heavenly father that we have been adopted into. It's our hope and our prayer that you see that through God's messiness, there is hope for each of us here. No matter what messiness we're living in, no matter what we're walking through with our earthly family, God hasn't left us. God sent his son, Jesus, so that we may be born new into this family. And that's a list that we are part of when we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So now that we've aired some of Jesus' dirty laundry for all of us to look at, and we've talked about why this list is important, we need to look at what do we do with this list? What do we do with the messiness in our own lives? I want to encourage us here today that we can do three things when dealing with our own messiness in our own lives. 
Number one, we can look at the bigger picture. Matthew is real history in the life of Jesus Christ. These are real people and real kings who had kids, who had more kids, who had more kids, who eventually, in God's redemptive plan, gave birth to Jesus the king. Jesus was adopted into Joseph's family, and Genesis 5 tells us, or Galatians 5 tells us, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. I love what Patrick Shiner says. Matthew's genealogy has a past, a present, and a future. In Jesus Christ, we're now brought into this family. Abraham and David become our fathers. It becomes our genealogy, our family tree. Though this world seeks historical rooting and future life in various ways, only one child established the new creation. Jesus is the point of this genealogy, for Jesus is the point of the Bible. I love that quote. The bigger picture is this. In Jesus, there is forgiveness. In Jesus, there is love. We have messiness in our lives. And it looks different for each and every one of us. But it's there. And sometimes we get stuck in that messiness and we feel like we can't get ourselves out of it. But Jesus' family tree shows a bigger picture. Jesus' family tree tells us we can. The Bible is not just a book of stories. It is the story of God's redemption for his people through his son, Jesus Christ. And we are all a part of that story. Number two, when dealing with the messiness, is we need to ask for God's grace. It's the best word in the English language, I would argue. I cannot tell you how many times I have people said to me, say to me, of course you believe in Jesus, you're perfect. Now, my husband knows that, but the rest of you sitting here, <laughs> the rest of you sitting here know that is so far from the truth. It's because of my imperfections, my men, plug your ears, honey. I know, you don't want to hear this. I don't want to burst your bubble. My many imperfections that I believe in Jesus. If not for Jesus' grace in my life and your life, Think to yourself, ask yourself, where would you be? Matthew 1, 1 through 17 says the family of Jesus is not reserved for the most spiritual or virtual among us. The family tree of Jesus is not an exclusive club for the pure and righteous. It's not just for people who measure up and are somehow good enough. It's not a club that you have to earn your way into. You don't get in by deserving you get in by grace, by the grace of God that became flesh in Jesus. Luke 19 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The genealogy of Jesus is important because it shows us that God can use anyone. God is a God of redemption, and when looking at our own messy life, we need to make sure we ask for God's grace. And finally, 
When looking at the genealogy of Jesus, we need to be on the lookout for Christ. Michael Reeves, in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, says this. We can open our Bible for all sorts of odd reasons, as a religious duty, an attempt to earn God's favor, or thinking that it serves as a moral self-help guide, a manual of handy tips for effective religious lives. That idea is actually one main reason so many feel discouraged in their Bible reading, hoping to find quick lessons for how they should spend today, people find instead a genealogy or a list of various sacrifices. And how could page after page of histories describing of descriptions of the temple, instructions to priests, affect how I rest, work, and pray today? But when you see that Christ is the subject of all scriptures, that he is the word, the Lord, the Son, who reveals his Father, the promised hope, the true temple, the true sacrifice, the great high priest, the ultimate king, then you can read not so much asking, what does this mean for me right now? But what do I learn here of Christ? Knowing that the Bible is about him and not me means that instead of reading the Bible obsessing about me, I can gaze on him. And as through the pages, you get caught up in the wonder of his story. You find your heart strangely pounding for him in a way you never would have had if you had treated the Bible as a book about you. Being on the lookout for Christ means that we read the Bible and realize that Christ is at the center of our lives, not us at the center of his. And when we begin to recognize the importance of God, who God created us to be, we can see that this story, this family list, is our family. It's our list. And we are welcome into it, mess and all. I want us to imagine what life would look like if we did things the way that Jesus did. We would love all sorts of people scandalous soap opera type people, people with a past, people struggling with addictions and hurts and temptations, people who don't know how to behave, people who are messy. If we're doing things the way Jesus did, our messiness may ruffle a feather or two, but we didn't do any, we didn't get here because of anything we did. Remember, Jesus spent time with tax collectors and prostitutes and adulterers and sinners. And more than that, he came from a family tree with sinners and marked with sinners and outsiders. So if we remember that Jesus came from this and that we come from this too, we can see that in the family of Christ, there's a place for each and every one of us. We can see that at the foot of the cross, it is a level ground for all of us. Jesus' messy list is for all of us. It means that we are adopted into the family of God. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we have our act together. It doesn't mean that by believing, all our troubles go away. It means that we are loved, that we are included, that we are forgiven, and that we belong. And God's redemptive story of Jesus' messy family tree includes us. Will you pray with me? Father God, um, we know that there are people here today 
that see Christmas more messy than Mary. We know that when they come through these doors, they come with trauma and pain and hurt and neglect and abuse and all sorts of pain endured at the hands of our earthly families. God, help us to let go of those pains at the foot of the cross. Help us to remember that the Bible is your redemptive story for our lives because you love us, because you care about us, because you forgive us and you want us in your family. God, if there is anyone here today who needs to know what that means, let them come to us to ask questions. Let them come to us to give their lives to you. Let them know that they can share your story with others wherever we are, God. Help us to move closer to you and to move others closer to you. It's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.